Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In this week's Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Jack Young, Ali May, and special guest Will Turnbull to talk about what's trending now. Welcome back to our regular listeners and those that are listening for the first time. Today, we're looking at a specific set of news stories focusing on policy issues affecting the life sciences sector in the UK. We're joined by our colleague, Will. Will recently joined Dynamic from the UK government, where he most recently held the position of Deputy Head of Healthcare and Life Sciences at the Department for International Trade. Big welcome to the podcast, Will. Thanks. It's great to be here. The first story we're going to discuss on today's podcast is UK's spring budget. And Will, I know you've been doing some really great analysis into what this means for the life sciences sector. So I wonder if you could tell us and our listeners a little bit more about that. The UK government's spring budget focused on the themes of tackling inflation, one of the key drivers of the ongoing cost of living crisis in the UK, reducing government debt and economic growth, which included some specific shout outs for life sciences. Namely, that it was listed as one of five high growth sectors that government hopes will drive the UK economy alongside green industries, digital technology, creative industries and advanced manufacturing. The life sciences sector has long been celebrated as one of the UK's genuine areas of world leading expertise, going all the way back to 2011, when the then Prime Minister David Cameron called life sciences the jewel in the crown of our economy. Now, life sciences was one of the first sector deals announced under Theresa May's industrial strategy back in 2017 and has been name checked by every subsequent prime minister as being a key driver of economic growth. Now, this was a budget where the Chancellor's eyes were firmly set on the next general election and spending of any significance was going to be aimed at shoring up the Conservatives' polling figures. Unfortunately for us, life sciences sector isn't top of voters' priority lists in the UK, uh, so it was never likely to receive substantial handouts this year. That said, the sector did receive some specific funding with an additional £10 million allocated to the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA to, and I quote, maximise its use of Brexit freedoms and accelerate patient access to treatments. Without wanting to get too far into the weeds of the UK's regulatory landscape, Brexit has caused a headache for companies wishing to access the UK market as our regulatory system now deviates from the EU's, meaning a separate approval has to be achieved before products can be placed on the market here. Thanks so much, Will. Some really interesting insights there from the recent spring budget. And I want to pick up on just one of the points you made around the regulatory piece and deviation in regulatory standards. These may require companies to generate more or indeed different evidence. And there might be a time and cost element associated with this and the various approvals and accompanying processes. So the silver lining from Brexit or the Brexit freedoms, if you will, is that the UK is now able to make up its own rules, which includes the potential to accept approvals from trusted international partners. And a good example of this was the COVID pandemic, where We were actually able to get vaccines approved faster, which I think was a real benefit because we didn't have to go through the perhaps cumbersome processes of the EU. But as I mentioned, there may be some downsides from a a cost and time perspective. And I know you're going to dive into this a little bit more detail, Will. 
It's a complex picture. There are positives and negatives. This, I think, is a genuine positive. And the funding that's been allocated to the NHRA has specifically been dedicated to establish an international recognition framework, which could allow the fast track approval of medicines or medical devices that have already been approved in other countries. So the FDA in the US and the Pharmaceuticals and Medical Devices Agency in Japan have been sort of explicitly named as the first regulatory partners for recognition routes. And you may expect the EU's European Medicine Agency, the EMA, to be not far down the line, although possibly not prioritised for political reasons. There were a few other announcements at budget that do have tangential benefits for the life sciences sector, such as R&D tax reliefs for small and medium-sized companies, plus the 10-year extension of the British Patient Capital Programme that invests in innovative UK companies. Now, while it's not particularly surprising that there weren't any big ticket items for the life sciences this year, recent fiscal events like budget or autumn statement have been an opportunity for the government to announce schemes or fundings to incentivise investment in the UK. For example, last year's £60 million Life Sciences Innovative Manufacturing Fund, which was a part of funding companies could apply to for new internationally mobile manufacturing projects. Obviously, the Chancellor has decided he can't afford to do anything similar this time, but this may come back to bite him if the UK fails to compete for investment in a sector that is increasingly globally competitive. So it sounds like a mixed bag at the moment for industry, Will. Nothing explicitly extra supporting life sciences industry, but perhaps some signals from the government that this will be a priority in the future. From your perspective, how has industry responded to the latest budget? So industry's response to the spring budget was broadly positive, with the UK Bioindustry Association, the Association of British Pharmaceutical Industries, and the Association of British Health Tech Industries, all welcoming the announcements. Although it's worth flagging that the Association for British Pharmaceutical Industry, the ABPI, has also flagged the ongoing issue of medicines pricing in the UK, noting that resolving this is critical to unlocking the high growth sector envisaged by the Chancellor. Thanks, Will, for taking us through this. I think pricing is a topic that we are not unfamiliar with on this side of the pond as well. We'll actually be diving a little bit more deeply into some pricing news for the US in an episode later this month. But I want to talk a little bit about the voluntary scheme in the UK. I know that's been a big focus of the pharmaceutical industry, particularly when it comes to branded medicines. So before we dive in, a bit of background for our listeners. There's been a voluntary scheme for medicine pricing in one form or another for the last 65 years in the UK. So currently there are two distinct schemes for medicine pricing. First, there's the 2019 voluntary scheme for branded medicines. And our listeners might have heard this often referred to as VPAS. And then there's also a statutory scheme. And both of these schemes have the same aim, which is to limit the growth in costs of medicines and to safeguard and preserve the finances of the NHS, as well as to ensure medicines are available on reasonable terms and delivered in a way that's consistent across the life sciences sector. So the current VPAS deal runs out in 2023, and this is the voluntary scheme that was negotiated by, as Will referenced earlier, the ABPI trade body. VPAS caps the nominal rate of branded medicine cost in the UK to 2% per year. Any cost that goes over that 2% is given back to the NHS as a rebate from life sciences and pharma companies. Now, the rebate rate is calculated in a very complicated NHS algorithm on branded medicines, and this VPAS voluntary scheme 
has 172 members and represents 9 billion of branded medicine sales, which for context is about 90% of UK branded medicine sales. The other 10% of life sciences and pharmaceutical companies, part of the statutory scheme, this is a legal requirement. You have to be in one scheme or the other. The growth rate in costs in this scheme is actually 1.1%. So it's lower than the 2% negotiated in VPAS. Thanks, Ollie. And although potentially complicated, it's worth noting that these schemes have been very successful, actually, in keeping healthcare affordable in the UK. And lots of studies have shown that drug prices in the UK have been relatively low, and especially compared to the US. And to bring a bit of colour to that with some statistics, a recent study by RAND showed that a brand name pill that costs $10 in the US would cost around $3.50 in Germany and calendar, $3.25 in Japan, and $3 in the UK, and $2.75 in Mexico. So quite a big discrepancy there from some of those countries in both Europe and Asia Pacific versus the US. And just one more stat, the UK spends around $4,300 per capita on healthcare, and that's similar to countries like Germany and France, but the US spends nearly $11,000 per capita on healthcare. We know healthcare in the U.S. is one of the biggest line items that we compare it to GDP. And when it comes to drug pricing, I think a lot of that is driven by the differences in our systems without fully going through the looking glass or down the rabbit hole. When you look at our private insurance market, there's a lot of rebating and discounting to get access to patients. So you'll see a lot of complexity there as the list price for a drug might be much higher than what the health plan, the payer or the patient actually ends up spending. But even when you compare our our public systems, right, if you look at Medicare, historically, the collective bargaining power of that market has been hindered by not being able to negotiate with manufacturers for drug pricing. Some of that is changing in the Inflation Reduction Act, which should hopefully help bring down the cost of drugs stateside as well. That piece of legislation also includes some mechanisms similar to what we've talked about in the UK, looking at caps to branded drug pricing, rather than maybe branded drug spend, not quite as low as the nominal 2%, but penalizing manufacturers who are raising their drug costs for a specific categories of drugs beyond that of the rate of inflation. So hopefully... On this side of the pond, we'll see some downward trajectories in the overall cost of branded prescription drugs as it comes. But it sounds like in the UK, medicines pricing is becoming a little bit more of an increasing problem for the government and the industry, similar, unfortunately, to how it is here stateside. Will, could you take us through some of the most pressing issues at the moment? The UK is starting to struggle with, I think, a lot of the similar issues that the US is facing, specifically in the UK. Due to a combination of factors, including you know, aging population, changes in medical practice, so doctors being encouraged to prescribe patients with the most effective medicines, which are often branded medicines in this case, as well as the structure of the commercial deals that the NHS is striking with pharmaceutical companies, the NHS's spend on branded medicines has increased in recent years, and with it, the annual repayment percentage under VPAS and the statutory scheme. So VPAS rebates were consistently below 10% in 2019, 2020, and 2021, the first three years of the currently negotiated deal, but it jumped to 15% in 2022 and will climb further to a pretty eye-watering 26.5% in 2023. So effectively, the way it's constructed, VPAS will hit pharmaceutical companies with an additional 
15 plus percent in repayments on their revenues from branded drugs this year versus what they paid two to four years ago. Projected industry repayments in 2023 is £3.3 billion. Now, these aren't the kinds of figures that the pharmaceutical industry can simply ignore. Now, the ABPI, the trade association that negotiated this deal in 2019 with the Department for Health and Social Care and NHS England and Innovation, has been acting as the industry's spokesperson and has been very vocal in their dissatisfaction about the level of repayments. You know, the crux of their argument is that the repayment rates for 2022 and 2023 are simply unsustainable and will drive investment away from the UK. There have been a number of public announcements from companies pointing to VPAS as a deterrent for investment in jobs, infrastructure and clinical trials in the UK. And in January, both Eli Lilly and AbbVie, massive sort of global pharmaceutical companies, quit the voluntary scheme in protest. Yeah, it's a real concern, Will. I mean, with those two really large top pharma companies pulling out, it begs the question, who may pull out next? And it's clear that there needs to be some consultation or some change around this, with the UK being a top life sciences powerhouse across the world. The last thing we want is to drive innovation, investment and research partnerships away to other perhaps more supportive markets. So it'll be interesting to see how this evolves in the coming weeks and months to ensure that the UK can maintain its excellent reputation as being a leader within the life sciences and innovation space. I want to bring it back to who I feel is always the most important stakeholder in all of this. Can you just share a bit more detail around what all these changes mean for patients, please? Certainly. And unsurprisingly, it's not good news for patients in the UK. So the life sciences sector here was already struggling through the post-Brexit impacts on supply chains and regulation, the huge political uncertainty in recent years, Think back to the last days of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss's brief chaotic tenure, the UK with the lowest growth rate in the G7. Despite the UK's rich heritage and science and research that you referenced, Jack, if you're the CEO of a multinational pharma company thinking about where you're going to spend your capital, why would you look to the UK at the moment? Add to all this the huge commercial headwinds from VPAS, and you can easily see the UK sliding down the league tables as a market for expansion, investment, clinical trials or product launch. This means it's more likely that patients in the UK will have to wait longer before industry decides to launch their products here and are less likely to be able to access the most innovative medicines via clinical trials. Depending on how severe both these things are, it may mean that the UK no longer meets the standard of care required for research. And it's worth knowing that the NHS drives huge amounts of revenues from the clinical trials that they run in a commercial environment. In 2018-19, the NHS raised £355 million for delivering commercial clinical trials and had an estimated cost saving of nearly £30 million where trial drugs were used in place of standard. UK's National Institute for Health and Care Research, the NIHR, also estimated that clinical research activity generated around £2.7 billion of GVA to the UK economy and nearly 50,000 jobs. And this sector is potentially at grave risk. Thanks for sharing that, Will. It's clearly a really complicated picture, a tangled web. The VPAS saves the government clearly a lot of money. And at the moment, they're clawing back huge amounts in rebates. And clearly, the scheme has been very effective at keeping costs down in the UK. Those numbers that Jack shared earlier, you know, it's significantly cheaper in the US and still a bit cheaper than France and Germany in terms of our spending on healthcare and drugs. So I guess it's a balance between that and then keeping the UK an attractive investment for life sciences companies 
and also to do clinical trials, which impacts our access to medicines as well. So I think the challenge for the government is what is the threshold that makes medicines affordable and gives us access to the newest and latest treatments whilst making the UK an attractive place to do business. That's going to be a challenge to find the right balance between those two competing priorities. Exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. Some level of rebate is arguably required to keep the NHS affordable for the UK taxpayer. But if it's too high, there is a point where it triggers a vicious cycle, which threatens the health of one of the UK's genuinely world-class industries and may have repercussions for patients in terms of access to market-leading medicines. So what about medicine pricing? What's next in that respect? As Oli covered earlier, the current VPAS agreement runs to the end of 2023. And the ABPI, on behalf of industry, has proposed a new voluntary scheme for addressing pricing, access and growth to start in 2024, which has sort of four key pillars. So firstly, to deliver sustainable approach uh, to medicines provision through a flat repayment rate of 6.88%, which is ABPI's calculation of the average paid through the pre-pandemic years of 2014 through to 2021. The second pillar is to maximise the potential of the UK life sciences industry as an engine for growth with a £1 billion investment facility funded by a 1.5% premium paid in addition to the above repayment rate, seeking to build the UK's capacity in key areas such as clinical trials, genomics and real world data. The third pillar is on ensuring rapid patient access and adoption of new medicines. And the fourth around improving health outcomes and productivity. Now, negotiations between government and the pharmaceutical industry to agree a mutually beneficial scheme will start in the spring and conclude in the autumn. So the new scheme is expected to come into force when the current one expires at the end of 2023. So, Will, it sounds like the trade body has a proposal that they put in place that they're a fan of. What do you think? Do you think this is sensible and logical? And what stance do you think the government will take on this proposal? It's really hard to see the government signing up to anything that doesn't put a cap on spending for branded medicines. Having had such a low cap for such a long time, effectively agreeing to unconstrained growth in the spending on branded medicines isn't something I can see them signing up to. And also the investment facility, the £1 billion, is again something I don't think the NHS or the Treasury in particular would agree to, whilst they currently have flexibility with how they spend the revenues, rebate payments that they generate from branded medicines, they would be particularly constrained under this investment facility. I can absolutely understand where industry is coming from with these good ideas to promote the growth of the sector, but that needs to be balanced against what's affordable. So if you had to ask my opinion, I think there's some good ideas in here, but it needs further refinement. Well, I think you've done a great job of explaining the tension here between this need to constrain costs and promote innovation. In our last episode, we talked about a new modernist facility opening up in Oxfordshire for mRNA vaccines and talked about potential opportunity innovation that that type of industry investment could bring to the UK overall. Could you go into a little bit more detail about what the government, if anything, is doing to promote further an investment and innovation in the UK. In our first item, I mentioned the £60 million Life Sciences Innovative Manufacturing Fund, which was announced in 2022. Last week, the beneficiaries of the first tranche of grants were announced, with government giving out £17 million in funding to unlock a further £260 million from private investors. The beneficiaries were Touchlight, 
Randox, Ipsen and Farmeron, who announced a £151 million investment to grow their operations in Liverpool, increasing production capacity for critical gene therapy and vaccines components. The government is doing things. These schemes that have been announced in recent years are incentivizing investment. Obviously, nothing announced this year specifically to, to attract investment at the spring budget, but there have been and there are initiatives um, at play here. That said, it is worth noting that Ipsen, the general manager in the UK, so Ipsen, a beneficiary of this very investment incentive scheme, also noted, and I quote, the untenable rebate rates being demanded from pharmaceutical companies. And he went on to say, as a result, many businesses are considering scaling back their presence in the UK, risking the nation falling further behind in future innovation and investment and risking UK patients not accessing the latest medicines. All of which is to say that grant incentives alone will not be sufficient to address industry's deeply felt concerns on the current formulation of BPAS. I think that's really interesting context, Will. And it sounds like the overall picture is that almost we're keeping prices low via VPAS and the government receives that huge rebate. But then the government actually gives grants back out to life sciences companies of their choosing. I know you've just mentioned four. And it feels like they're becoming quite deeply involved in the sector, trying to pick and choose a bit who gets the grants and charging huge rebates to some of the bigger players. And I know you mentioned two that are potentially looking to pull out of the UK. The government seems to be having an impact over a lot of areas, Will. Just one final question for you. Do you think there are any gaps in the government's current approach to supporting the life sciences sector? I know that's a huge open question, but if you were in charge, is there something different you would do or a different area that you would look at that you think is amiss from a policy perspective at the moment? What we've seen here and what you neatly summarised is that there is a deep ideological tension within government. On the one side, you have the HSC and the NHS who don't necessarily subscribe to the belief that limiting spend on branded medicines will drive investment out of the UK. And then you have the business facing side of government that's much more acutely aware of how globally competitive the life sciences sector is, of the need to sort of generate an attractive investment proposal for the UK in order to stimulate this high growth economy, these the jobs, the research and development, the sort of investment in infrastructure, etc. When you have this ideological tension, you aren't able to support the sector effectively. I think what you really need in government is a unified view, and you need to cross that bridge that is currently existing at the heart of government and the key part of government that is the policy making hub for life sciences. Once you tackle that, a lot of this becomes easier, doesn't necessarily all fall into place, doesn't make the world any sort of less competitive, but it does mean that you can provide a more aligned front to how the UK government engages with industry. Certainly a delicate dance to be had here, maybe to build on your metaphor, Will, quite a fine tightrope bridge for the government to walk and something that I'm sure we'll see evolve over the course of this year as this proposal is finalized before the current installation of VPAS runs out at year end. So thank you so much, Will, for joining us and taking our listeners through all of the complexities of this issue for our listeners who are interested in understanding a little bit more about some of the current challenges we're facing on the U.S. side of the pond when it comes to brand and drug pricing, you can tune in to our episode of Trending News U.S. later this month. Dynamic will also be supporting 
the Reuters Pharma 2023 conference as a sponsor, which is taking place in Barcelona from April 18th to 20th. This conference brings together over a thousand patient experts and pharma changemakers from commercial marketing, medical affairs, patient engagement, market access, real world evidence, and digital health. We'll be hosting a patient engagement related roundtable during the event. And so if you're going to the conference, please make sure you sign up for that. It's going to be a great session with our own Jack from the podcast. If you're not going, if you're not on our next episode, we'll be summarizing some of the key insights from the conference, as well as the outputs from the roundtable. So make sure that you tune into our May episode to hear more. As always, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. So I look forward to what we're talking about next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.